WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, editor and publisher of Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper, here with our managing editor, Andy Belaskovitz. And uh, later in the show, uh, of course, we'll listen to uh, the audio from uh, City Pulse Newsmakers, our TV show. Uh, the subject was uh, minimum wage and a very interesting uh, discussion between two folks on opposite sides of that issue. We'll also uh, talk to the organizer of the big microbrew and music festival at the Dotto Park uh, this weekend and also a fellow who's organized a pre-party for that event. And uh, coming up as well as uh, Sierra Club field organizer, Andy, will be talking to him. First up, though, on the phone with us now is Frank Ravitch, who's an MSU professor of law and religion. Dr. Ravitch, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, this week in City Pulse, we have published uh, for the first time a list of uh, Gay-friendly churches, just in time for uh, folks who uh, want to uh, go to Easter services. And it's not just churches, it's uh, gay-friendly uh, places of worship. Uh, and uh, the questions we asked uh, those churches was, uh, uh, would they uh, perform same-sex marriages? And did they look at uh, same-sex sex as a sin? And we came up with, uh, gee, it looks like maybe about 20 places or so in town uh, that uh, answered uh, uh, yes, that they would perform them, and uh, no, they didn't look at it as a sin. Uh, Dr. Ravage, tell me uh, how things are evolving with churches on this issue that is moving quickly otherwise in the nation. Well, I think with religious entities generally, there's, um, you know, you, you've got the literalist um, uh, trend, which is um, religions that would take uh, language in the, in the Bible or another text quite literally, um, and in those cases, they may be less friendly um, to gay marriage uh, and so forth. You'll have other groups that um, I think... Uh, Involve, engage in a lot more interpretation, also maybe understand a little better that the texts were not originally written in English, and therefore one has to understand not only their context, but the original language in which they were written. Um, and, and, you know, this is a very large number of churches and synagogues and, and other religious entities, uh, and they, they tend to, at least among many, um, there's a tendency to be more um, open to a variety of interpretations so long as those interpretations are consistent. And there certainly are um, biblical interpretations that are consistent with allowing uh, gay marriage. And even among some religions or some denominations that view um, something, uh, maybe sex, as a, uh, of some sort of a sin, they view um, the, the marriage and so forth as okay because there are bigger religious concepts that would prohibit sorts of discrimination and so forth. So you may even get some religions that actually do view not just gay sex, but a lot of heterosexual sort of sex as a, as a sin, and yet uh, will perform uh, wedding ceremonies um, with the idea that there are bigger principles involved in regard regarding non-discrimination um, and a message of love and so forth. So there's a, there's a variety of different approaches. Uh, and what we've heard from some ministers, uh, especially UCC ones, uh, that this is not necessarily a settled issue across the board for congregations of that religion, that congregations will differ on that. Is, is that right? Yes, it's very common within um, a denomination or a sect to have, uh, particularly one that's congregational, and it's not a, if it's not a hierarchical uh, sort of religion, there's a there's a, more of an opportunity for different congregations to make their own choices. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you hear frequently in sort of public debates over the gay marriage issue is, oh, you know, they're t- 
churches are going to be forced to perform these um, these ceremonies and so forth. And the reality is that um, you know that that's that, that's not what this issue is about. This issue is about whether or not government can deny people who are consenting adults the right to marry. That's the actual issue involved. Nobody's going to force a church to recognize a gay marriage if that church doesn't believe that that's appropriate under the church's doctrine. Um, and so, you know, within certain denominations, they'll allow um, sects to make their own, uh, or churches to make their own decisions uh, about what that particular church uh, or congregation um, chooses to recognize. And that's totally consistent um, with the doctrine in some of these churches, which allows for difference of opinion. Uh, you know, we hear the uh, comparisons between uh, interracial marriage and same-sex marriage. Uh, is that, as far as legally, uh, the, the way things evolved, uh, is that also true within churches? Are the churches that discriminate against uh, uh, homosexuals the same churches necessarily that discriminated on the basis of race? No, actually, it's, it's interesting. It's not. Um, it, it's not. That overlap really doesn't exist uh, so much. Now, there is a legal, I think, equivalent, which is there's a famous case called Loving v. Virginia, where Virginia had an anti-miscegenation law prohibited uh, intermarriage uh, between uh, uh, people who are white and African-Americans. Um, and uh, it, the Supreme Court quite appropriately found that that law violates equal protection, and it's unconstitutional. Uh, and I think you could certainly, as we're seeing in many courts now, uh, see an argument that denying consenting adults a right to marry, um, it can also be an equal protection violation if it's based on some sort of animus, you know, where it's, it's not just based on, um, you know, uh, some, you know, reason that society would generally find acceptable, but based on perhaps discrimination or, or dislike of a particular group. Um, and so uh, courts are finding equal protection concerns there. When it comes to the, the, the history of religion, some of the very religions, interestingly enough, that were most hostile um, to, um, uh, I'm sorry, most supportive of uh, uh, racial intermarriage back in the 50s and 60s, are some of the ones who today are the most against gay marriage. Um, so I think that there is, um, you know, there's certainly some overlap. Um, but I think that really it's very different for, for some of these churches. Um, it's, they view it as, their, as, as a really a biblical command, and they, and they won't recognize it. Uh, they sort of have the view of, um, you know, uh, I hate the sin but love the sinner, I guess they would say. Um, you know, my religion doesn't view it as a sin, so I, I, for me, it's just love everybody. But um, as long as you know, as long as they're not hurting people. Your re- um, what, what is your what is your religion? Or you, you weren't talking about your religion. You're talking about someone else's religion. Well, in my, in my religion, it's it's I love you know it's, it's you know, I don't my religion doesn't believe uh, we support gay marriage. My religion is supportive of gay marriage and supportive. Uh, what is uh, your what is, what is your religion, Doctor? Um, I'm Jewish, but I'm not. Uh, I'm part of the conservative Jewish movement, um, which is not politically conservative. We're just kind of the middle. We're between Reform and Orthodox. Now, are there, uh, for example, Hasidic Jews? Uh, do they uh, uh, do they allow same sex marriage? No, no. The, um, Orthodox uh, and Hasidic do not allow. Um, same-sex marriage, um, although, you know, they're, uh, they're, among the modern Orthodox, there's some discussion of that, of, you know, whether it should be or should not be, among very modern Orthodox. Uh, tell us, uh, we only have a little time left, uh, we've heard, I guess, some examples of uh, how uh, law and religion can come, uh, uh, can work together, but uh, what do you do in your field? Well, I, I work a lot, really, with the First Amendment um, and with issues about uh, both um, preventing religion from, um, you know, uh, being imposed on people through government, uh, but also in protecting the right of people who are people of faith to believe what they want to believe and practice what they want to practice. So, 
Um, it's interesting, you know, on this issue, I, I'm personally a very big supporter of gay marriage. My view is it's none of government government's business to tell uh, consenting adults that they can't get married. Um, but, um, you know, I would also defend the right, and I believe that not allowing it violates equal protection, uh, violates the Constitution. But I, I would defend the right of a religious group who personally, that that group does not support gay marriage and they don't want to recognize gay marriages, if ever, and it would never happen, but if ever they were told they have to perform a ceremony, you know, I would defend their right to religious freedom. That's a constitutional matter. I would completely disagree with them on the underlying religion. Um, but so I'm, mostly what I'm focused on is protecting um, people from having the government impose religion on them, but also protecting religions from having, um, you know, a government tell them what they can and can't do. So you might call it loosely uh, uh, separation of church and state. All right. Well, Dr. Frank Ravage, uh, uh, happy Passover to you, and thank you very much for being on City Pulse. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have Uh, a great day. You too. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Uh, Next up is Andy Blaskowitz with Brad Van Gilder from the Sierra Club. Great. Uh, Thanks for being on the program, Brad. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so over the weekend, um, I, I got an a email in my inbox from the Sierra Club of Michigan calling on the Lansing Board of Water and Light to close their aging coal-fired power plant uh, uh, just south of downtown, the Eckert plant, which anyone who's driven through Lansing will recognize as the three hulking smokestacks just south of 496. But Brad, why is the Sierra Club um, devoting uh, its attention to this particular plant? Well, um, you know, the, the Lansing Port of Water and Light is really um, already is planning to close the plant. I mean, they already started closing um, three of the units, and they announced that last July. And um, it's, has, it's just not, no longer economic to uh, continue to operate the plant. And um, it's the closing of a, uh, is of a lot of uh, coal-fired power plants around the country is being driven first and foremost by economics. Um, just the cost of, of coal and continuing to, to operate uh, power plants that are 50, 60 years old um, just doesn't make economic sense anymore. And then the timeline for those kinds of closings are really being set by um, some rules that are coming forward from the EPA. But the utility industry has known about these these rules for a very long time. So, for example, the the current one uh, is the mercury and air toxic standard that the Eckerd power plant has to meet, and it's um, you know uh, far exceeds that at the moment. Uh, in order for it to meet that, um, it would need to have additional pollution controls added, and it's, that standard was first approved by Congress in in 1990. So the utility industry has known for 24 years that this standard was coming, um, but it was finally only implemented by the EPA under the Obama administration, and so it's been you know, basically immediately on the, the doorstep of the utility industry for the last five years. Mm-hmm. So to, to the layman who would hear this, they, they might think, okay, uh, that sounds great, but where are we going to get the power that came from Eckert from? Um, well... Um, the BWL has already done some good planning around this. So, for example, they've already replaced a good portion of that power by building uh, the new Rio Town gas-fired power plant, mm-hmm. um, and that, that's going to replace a good substantial portion of it. Um, there also have been uh, doing some relatively small implementations of renewable energy, and they could certainly do more of that. Um, right now, you know, the, the Eckert power plant... Um, you know, it's, it's really the amount of power the left that needs to be replaced is not that much. Um, I've heard estimates between 70 and 140 megawatts, which is only about, oh, you know, 30% of uh, what the original constructed capacity of the plant is. So do, do you know about the power that needs to be replaced? Um, and the easy way to do that is to simply bring in uh, uh, an additional um transmission line to the national grid so that you can easily purchase that power um, 
through the entire grid, or you can make a choice to have that power being provided by uh, additional wind farms that the BWL can invest in. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, after I spoke with you on on Monday, I, I asked the, the BWL to respond, and uh, what I heard was that a they're in the process of closing down more boilers in the next uh, in the in the coming years, I believe, at the Morris Park portion of the facility, um, but that also that they can't cl- shut down Eckert by that time because they would fail to meet uh, federal. Uh, requirements for uh, electric reliability. Um, what's your response to that? So, we've, I've been meeting with uh, BWL staff um, for you know a couple years now, and have talked with them about this. Um, you know, they do have these uh, requirements that they have to meet in terms of being able to have power capacity and reliability for being able to have uh, su- sufficient ways to bring the power into the downtown area of Lansing. Those are all all true. And the planning for that um, has been in process for some time and it's what our concern is is it you know it's it's been happening very slowly when they have known for a long time that this was gonna need to have to happen. Um, in terms of the specific timing at this point um, they um, under these rules, the, they have already asked for a one-year extension. Um, they can get uh, as much as a one additional year extension under uh, what are supposed to be um, ex- uh, extraordinary circumstances. And that one additional year would put them within the, the uh, time frame, within the window of being able to complete the, the necessary transmission lines to both satisfy having enough power uh, provided for the service area and the reliability of having enough ways to be able to get the power into the areas that are necessary. And uh, we, we've got about a minute left, uh, Brad. What does this mean then for the, B, the BWL's other plant in town, the Ericsson plant, that's also uh, coal-powered? Fi- coal so the, the Ericsson uh, coal-fired power plant, it's uh, a little bit newer than the, it's about 20 year, years uh, newer than the Eckert power plant. Uh, currently, it can meet this uh, new standard for the mercury and air toxics with pollution controls that already exist, uh, that have already been uh, installed there. It will add some additional operating costs, um, but it'll only increase operating costs by about 3%. So on the short term, Ericsson can continue to operate as a you know a source of reliable power on the short term, but eventually the economics are going to catch up with the uh, Ericsson plant as well, and you know, BWL really needs to engage in a community planning process for what does the people who live in their service story want to see as their future, rather than having this stop and start. Um, planning that has happened with the Eckert power plant that has now put them in this bind where they're not prepared to meet the standard at the appropriate time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Brad, unfortunately, we're out of time, but uh, Brad Van Gilder of the Sierra Club, thanks for being on City Pulse. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89 This weekend is the big beer festival in Lansing, the uh, microbrew and music festival that uh, has always been on, but not necessarily at the same location. But it will be this uh, this Friday and Saturday at uh, Luadado Park, on uh, which is really Riverfront Park, uh, in, uh, along the Grand River near LCC. You probably know where it is, but if not, you can pick up City Pulse and find out more exactly about it and on the phone with us is the organizer sam porter sam uh, welcome to the show hey good morning uh, good afternoon, yeah right? whatever time it is well i'm sure <laughs> with you planning a festival you probably aren't sure but uh yeah. the, the main thing is it's going to come off and you got it's quite a combination tell us what people can expect well you can expect two days of you know great food great music great beer 
and uh, offer great causes. So we'll bring together, you know, over 200 flavors of craft beer, and uh, then we'll have three different stages featuring music from, you know, a silent disco, DJ tent with five or six different DJs. Some of them have interactive saxophones. I mean, it's, it's a very cool space. To our headliners like OAR and Dirty Heads and, and uh, Chad Stokes from Dispatch. Um, so, you know, we really try to pair, uh, you know, the, this kind of craft beer culture with the things that people who drink great beer love, which is music and food. Well, you call them OAR. I called them OR this morning on another radio show and sure heard about it, but uh, pretty big name group. What are the good causes that uh, you're doing this for? Well, you know, we teamed up, you know, we, we work with a nonprofit every event we do because um, 100% of all the proceeds through all the alcohol sales have to support a nonprofit. And it's a great state law that the MLCC uh, manages here. So um, we have a nonprofit uh, called Zero Waste Events, and they partnered up with the Greater Lansing Food Bank. So as we tour this idea, our goal is to align ourselves directly and support local food banks. So we, we you know, in Traverse City this uh, past summer, we raised almost $38,000 um, for our local food banks. So for Lansing, as this festival grows, we hope to really be a huge resource for the local food needs um, and for the food bank. So, um, you know, pairing those nonprofits, there's also a lot of nonprofits on site connected to the music. Uh, you know, local artists tend to be nonprofits, whether they're, uh, you know, bagpipe uh, groups like that are playing on Friday night. So, um, you know, there's just really the theme of this event is to really uh, feature the, the the best of the region. Really focus on you know values that are placemaking values, uh, from food to local vendors to local food, um, and that's that's just that's what we do. It's a non uh, exclusive event. It's a very inclusive model. You know, the uh, people have said, man, it takes nerve to put this on in April in Lansing, but you do it in February up north in Traverse City, don't you? Yeah, we do it in the middle of the you know the polar vortex that we had this year. It was you know sideways snow, and we had five thousand people show up. And uh, you know it's definitely in beer festivals. You shouldn't wear high heels to an outdoor beer festival. It's just a rule of thumb. Um, and you know in Traverse City, we've had this will be our seventh annual Traverse City Microbrew Music Festival. But what makes this uh, unique for Lansing is uh, we just launched a company called TentVenue.com, and so everyone will see this massive. Uh, 4,000 capacity, gorgeous, huge tent on Adato Park uh, here in Lansing. It's our first tour. So our goal is to use this tent, take it to communities, especially communities that don't have venues or roofs or shelter to host, you know, big, cool events. Um, and then we'll take Michigan ideas and, and craft beer and, and similar to other communities outside of the state. So we're driving business uh, always back home. Sam, Sam, uh, after after several good years in Traverse City, why why Lansing? Out of you know, out of the areas question. you could, um, yeah, you know, we did a lot of research. Uh, you know, Lansing is right in the center of the state. Uh, it's the capital. We really wanted to bring this Michigan idea right to our home. A lot of our team graduated from Michigan State University, and honestly, that was probably one of the biggest pushes uh, they wanted to bring in here. So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, Lansing is a kind of a, a growing craft beer community. I mean, the Hopcat just opened, local bars are opening. Um, we found in Traverse City where we have, you know, almost 12 breweries, um, soon to be 14, um, in one of the smallest, you know, communities in the state for, I mean, per capita, there's a lot of breweries. So we find with a festival model that we can take it to a community and really uh, inspire entrepreneurs and people to, to go for it and realize that there's thousands of people that really love craft beer and maybe they get the energy to start another brewery uh, in their local community. So there's a lot of values based on why we choose a place. Um, uh, you know, Sam, so I'm, are, I hate you know, to cut you off, but we're going to have to let you go. Uh, but uh, best of luck to you to this weekend. We're pulling for you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. More on the beer front. For that, I'm going to uh, turn things over to uh, Andy. All right, excellent. Well, we've got on the phone with us uh, Mike Lasher, who's uh, putting on an event uh, Thursday night at the Loft. Uh, Mike, we were just talking with Sam Porter, uh, who's bringing music and beer to town, but you are taking a different round. You've got a bunch of comedians coming to town. Tell us about uh, Brouhaha on Thursday. Brouhaha. Yes, we do. We uh, we started this event off for town with Beer Week 
a few months ago. It worked out really well. Um, I think craft beer and comedy kind of fit together. They both kind of push the boundaries, trying to kind of redefine things, um, and it's a really fun event for them. Uh, so there's, uh, if I understand, there's going to be six craft beers on tap. What's going to be available? So we're going to be, uh, I work for New Belgium Brewing as well as being a comic. We're bringing in six craft beers, uh, three of the more mainstay ones with Fat Tire, our new beer Snapshot, and our seasonal Spring Blonde. And then we have a few more esoteric, kind of weird brands um, from our Lips of Faith series that are kind of crazy, just let our brewers do whatever they want. Um, with that series, <laughs> and uh, so so you're based out of Grand Rapids right now, and I understand you're bringing some of your friends to tell some jokes. Uh, tell us about the the comedy that's planned. Yeah, so it's definitely um, going to be an interesting show. We have uh, three comics, including myself from Grand Rapids, Adam Deggy, um, probably one of the more well known ones. He's been headlining some shows, did a lot of shows for Last. That's going to be our headliner. And a couple of my buddies, Jacob Kuban and Josh Ortega um, from Grand Rapids, they've been hitting the scene for a while. They're going to be doing some time. We also have two guys from Lansing with Pat Seaver and Jason Carlin that uh, are going to start up the show, and we're being hosted by a lady from Kalamazoo named Jen Dama. All right, excellent. Well, this is this is going to be at least the third sort of craft beer centric event going on in Lansing in the past three weeks. What's what's going on? I mean, I don't think this has ever happened before. What's what's changing that uh, it seems like Lansing is getting on board with uh, a bigger trend? Yeah, well, I think it kind of started in West Michigan and it's working its way through the state, but it's really a nationwide thing. And I think it's just uh, for a long time beer was kind of perceived in a certain light and that light was a blue collar drink it was domestic lagers like your Budweiser's and your Bud Lights and that was pretty much it um, and that turned a lot of people off the category and it kind of you know it took a lot of demographics out of the mix and now with the craft beer movement and the local it kind of goes hand in hand with the local movement and pushing the boundaries redefining kind of what beer is and people are finding out that not they didn't, they didn't necessarily not like beer they just didn't like the beers that were being served to them. So um, craft beer is just kind of about creativity and bringing new offerings and styles to the you know people, and I think people can really get behind that. Plus, with the local production and things like that, um, that gives added incentives to have these events. Yeah, the, the Sam touched on it briefly, but what 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 changes are happening um, from a legislative perspective that that's really allowing this industry to take off? Yeah, so Michigan's liquor laws for a while um, had some archaic laws. They were basically post-prohibition laws that just really never changed. Um, so some of them were pretty restrictive, especially with, you know, we, we couldn't prepare for this whole uh, craft brewery thing. Before prohibition, basically, we had the same kind of thing going on as we do now. There were lots of local breweries. People produced beer in their own communities. There wasn't a lot of shipping in and out of state, like the bigger breweries. And then after Prohibition, everyone didn't have the capital to go back to brewing, so the big brewers took over. Um, so now, you know, you're starting to see this, this, this big boom of all the craft beer, and now we have some new legislation that's coming in that's going to make it even better. Like, um, tat, we've lowered the taxing on the excise tax, tax for brewers so they can keep a little more cash flow. The newest thing that's passed that's the most exciting is um, – in Michigan, we have a three-tier system. So as a brewery, if you want to distribute to people, you have to sell to a distributor, and then they sell it to retailers. But they just passed a law that smaller breweries can self-distribute, sell their own beer to people up to a 1,000 barrels a year. So that helps get these small guys going without having to sign a contract with a larger brewery or with a larger distributor um, where they can keep all that money and you know, reinvest and keep growing. Uh, all right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But for now, uh, Brouhaha is Thursday night at the Loft. It is a ticketed event. Uh, we can't say prices on the air, but uh, there'll be beer and comedy. But, uh, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks a lot, man. You're listening to Impact Exposure. All right, uh, you're listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm 
Burl Schwartz here with Andy Belaskovitz. So on our TV show uh, Sunday, City Pulse Newsmakers on My18, uh, we took up the topic of minimum wage, obviously a big one. President Obama is uh, trying to get the federal minimum wage raised to $10.10 an hour. He came to Ann Arbor uh, about 10 days ago. Uh, a week ago, I guess, to uh, discuss uh, that campaign for it. And uh, joining us on the TV show were uh, Gilda Jacobs, a former uh, state senator from Huntington Woods, who is now the uh, president and CEO of the Michigan League for Public Policy. She's very much in favor of a minimum wage um, increase. And uh, Jarrett Skurup, who is a research analyst for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, who uh, thinks uh, we should go back to, I guess, Adam Smith economics and let the marketplace decide uh, what people are paid. Uh, so let's uh, listen right now to uh, Senator Jacobs and, uh, and Jarrett uh, Skurup. This is City Pulse Newsmakers, a weekly look at the issues and the people behind them in Greater Lansing. Brought to you by City Pulse, Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. And now, here's your host, editor and publisher, Burl Schwartz. Good morning. President Obama was in Michigan recently to campaign for an increase in the minimum wage. He'd like to see it at $10.10 an hour. It is $7.40 an hour in Michigan. Opponents say an increase is going to cost jobs. Is that true? Well, that's one of our uh, questions today for our guests, and they are uh, Gilda Jacobs, who is the executive director of the uh, Michigan League for Public Policy, and uh, Jarrett Skorup, who is uh, research associate for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Uh, Senator, let's uh, start with you, if we may, on that topic of uh, whether it uh, is going to cost jobs. Well, I think that there have been a lot of studies, as well as we can take a look at other states. Um, there have been some uh, some changes in, in jobs, but really not a hugely significant um, change. Um, you know, there there is some estimation that perhaps maybe 500,000 workers might be affected. However, more than a million people would be lifted out of poverty, and that's Na- a half- nationally. N- nationally, yeah. So these are national numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you say, "Well, gee, 500,000 sounds like a big amount," if you um, actually take a look at what employers have done, sometimes because there are a lot of uh, uh, turnover in some of these um, uh, lower wage jobs, employers are are choosing just not to replace those those workers. So. Yeah, that number is not one that should cause too much alarm because there's different dis- business practices in terms of how people would would uh, actually absorb that. But for every um, one person that unfortunately might lose a job, 33 other people uh, would actually be more positively impacted by having a change in, in raising the minimum wage. And uh, just uh, for a little more background, in Michigan, uh, there are about a million people making less than $10.10 an hour, and uh, about 95, 96,000 of them are actually making the minimum wage of seven forty an hour. Jacob, what are your thoughts on uh, job uh, losing jobs uh, with an increase? Yeah, I, I mostly agree with that. That's uh, a lot of that's the, the CBO Congressional Bu- Budget Office came out, and that was their estimate. They gave a range, and, the, and they settled on the most likely being half half million jobs um, nationwide. Um, it's hard to say. There's there's been a lot of economic research on this, um, and. But beyond just the, I mean, I certainly think it'll cost some jobs. I mean, that that's, you know, Econ 101 is if you make the price of something, if you, if you raise the price of something, you'll get less of it, and you're raising the price of hiring at least a certain amount of workers. Um, but the other part of it is there's other ways that the worker, uh, that could harm workers or, or harm businesses. You know, if they, if they, if they can't necessarily get rid of someone, they can make employees pick up more 
more costs, or they can they can put other things on top of the employees that make uh, working more difficult. But it's, those things are a lot harder to measure. Yeah, well, what sort um, of things would that be? Well, so uh, you know, some fast food restaurants in the past, um, you know, they might pick up the costs of uniforms or things like that, and maybe they pass that on to the employees, or they uh, trim break time, you know, in order to get people to pick up. Um, more hours before where they might have hired on somebody additional. So there's a lot of things that are, are really difficult to measure on this, but you know, o- overall I, I would say just making, it, you're specifically making it more expensive to hire those beginning workers. So those people uh, who are coming in a lot of times into their first job and trying to work their way up. Um, so uh, those are mostly who you're affecting. Uh, Senator, your thoughts on that? Well, it, 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 we really should take a look at what you know what Michigan is, and you did give a Michigan statistic, and 52% of that number are women who are supporting families. So 52% this, of the number of, below? Uh, and of, of people that are working at, at minimum oh, wage okay. uh, jobs. So about 45, 42. Uh, Actually, I think it's a little high. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about, about 52%, I think, are, are women that mm-hmm. are working at minimum wage jobs. So this becomes not just an issue of, um, you know, kind of dollars, uh, but it's also an issue of how those dollars are really supporting families that are headed by uh by single uh, single moms, and uh, in those families, um, and I hate to really throw out a lot of statistics, but it's, it, I think it's sort of interesting. Fifteen percent of all kids in Michigan are supported by um, parents and moms that are working at minimum wage. So this is really significant economic impact, as well as um, uh, uh, an impact on the education of kids, <laughs> which you know people would say, well, how, you know, how do you kind of connect the dots to that? But as um, parents earn more money, the educational achievement of their kids is is increased. So there's a lot of really positive things that can happen when we raise the minimum wage. And Michigan, there was just an article. Um, uh, a couple of many articles actually this week uh, because it was gender or pay. equal pay, yeah. <laughs> equal sure. pay. Um, and um, Michigan does not fare very well in terms of uh, um, women earning uh, equal, equal amounts to, to men. So this is actually a, a way for us to kind of close that uh, gender gap in Michigan as well. If if we um, and, and when we pass the minimum wage. Uh, you, your organization uh, has just recently uh, taken a position, uh, at least issued a, a, a position paper, mm-hmm. and uh, you say that it would be good for working families, good for Michigan's economy. What, what, where, what is the Mackinac Center's position? Um, that when the government interferes in the labor market, you generally get worse outcomes than what you expect, um, than what you, what you think. So, you know, Thomas Sowell, who's one of my famous uh, favorite economists, says there's no solutions, only trade-offs. So, um, unfortunately, when you're interfering in the market and enforcing uh, this higher wage, there are trade-offs, which are lost jobs. And, and everyone acknowledged that, that. That's why we're talking about a 10-10 an hour uh, hike and not 20 or $30, because mm-hmm. I think even Michigan League would acknowledge if you, if you mandated 20 or $30 an hour, you would see some, some sure. terrible effects. Um, I would argue that those effects are going to happen, are coming in, and a lot of them are negative before the, you know, e- less than that, that 20 or $30, even at 10 10 an hour. So, you know, some of those are, are harder to measure, but they, there's certainly going to be negative effects on the economy. Um, I think one really important statistic on... Let's stop there for a second, because your, your position paper argues there would be positive effects on the economy sure. overall. You know, when people have more money in their pocket, especially a lower-income person, they're spending their that money directly in their community. They're going out there buying food, they're buying shoes for their kids, um, they're uh, able to handle medical bills, maybe they're buying a new set of tires for their car. That money is plowed right back into the community. So there's a huge positive effect. And the other really interesting thing is that of small businesses, um, more than 80% of small businesses already pay their workers beyond the minimum wage because when, when you are compensated properly. You have a lot of loyalty to your employer. You have way less turnover. And all of that actually something that I would think the Mackinac Center would actually agree with because that creates more solid businesses. 
Right. So, well, so 98% of workers make more than a minimum wage right off the bat. You know, we're talking about 2% of the workers that are making minimum wage in this, con mm -hmm. in this country. So the vast majority pay more than that, which should actually tell you um, that uh, uh, compensation is determined by supply and demand in the marketplace. Because if it wasn't, if, if it was just businesses saying, this is what we're going to pay, every single person would make minimum wage. And, of course, they don't. Um, but the, the other point, uh, you know, I would make is, so... Of the people who make under 10, 10 an hour, according to the U.S. Census, 15% of those are people who live in poverty. So the vast majority of those are people who are not in poverty, and the majority of those are people who are from families that make above the average income in the country. So not only just you know teenagers or, or college students picking up a few hours, but maybe a spouse, a husband or a wife whose um, spouse is the full-time employer, and they're picking up a few hours um, here and there. So you know, in terms of helping alleviate poverty, this is really not a very good way to do it because you're aiming at such a small part of of the proportion that's in poverty. Well, there are there are a lot of low-income people that work in um, low low-wage jobs because they are trying to help support their their family and, and supplement their income, um, and that's you know that's a good thing. Um, the average age, I believe, of somebody that is working minimum wage, I think, is about 34, 34 year, years old. Um, so those are generally people that um, uh, are going to be uh, trying to help out their families with the money that they're um, that, that they're earning. Well, you you talked a little bit about putting more money back in the economy. Mm -hmm. So if so if, if government can just say we're going to set this wage and that'll put more money back in the economy, then why not call for that twenty dollars an hour? Um, wouldn't that put even more money back into the local economy? No, I think we have to be reasonable in terms of you know what um, what a, an employer can can pay, mm -hmm. and um, I think that uh, just you know we're really talking about lifting the minimum wage over a period of time, trying to not do it you know overnight. Uh, the way the um, uh, ballot proposal is written is that there is a phase-in over three years. It's being very sensitive to businesses. Uh, in terms of the tipped workers, it's actually phased in over, I think, 10 in years decade, before yeah. you even get to, uh, to the 1010. So, you know, this is not, the, you know, this crazy radical idea. It's really something that is taking into consideration the, the needs of, uh, uh, of employers uh, because, you know, you don't want there to be a huge negative effect to, to, to businesses because we all know that um, businesses help to, you know, drive a, a healthy economy. Right. But so I'm just trying to figure out when does that change? When does it go from good to being a negative effect on businesses? What are what is the, the you know, policy? I, you know, I don't know what that you know what that cliff is, but mm -hmm. I just do know that in other states that have raised the minimum wage, um, we have seen good uh, positive uh, outcomes when we look uh, you know at this um, uh, uh, amount that makes sense. Uh, you, you talk in terms of uh, trade-offs, uh, and of course there are trade-offs, as even you, mm -hmm. uh, you, you agree, uh, but uh, aren't there other trade-offs if you uh, don't increase minimum wage, you have, don't you have more people seeking food stamps and more people seeking other assistance uh, that uh, perhaps uh, there may be some jobs lost, but there would be fewer people seeking the, the assistance. Uh, yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, though, only 15% of the, and this isn't minimum wage workers, this is under 10, 10 an hour. The people making under 10, 10 an hour right now, only 15%, according to the U.S. Census, of those live in poverty. And the majority of those are in families that are well above the average income. So to answer your question, if you want to help people in poverty, then what you're talking about is doing this mandate on businesses, which is going to have a distorted effect on things. Well, if you want to help people in poverty, then why not argue for something like the earned income tax credit, which I know Michigan Leap mm -hmm. or Policy does, but that'd be a much more efficient way to attack that problem. Then you have people incentivized, um, the incentives more properly aligned. They have an incentive to get a job, and to the extent that they can't earn enough money, we're providing them a subsidy. That's a much better way, much cleaner way. And, and the vast majority of economists, left and right, would tell you that's how you want to help people in poverty rather than to go through you know, this private market and have mandates on businesses, which has all kinds of distorted effects. Senator? Well, it's, it's both and. You don't want to give up the EITC uh, in lieu of raising the minimum wage. You really need both. I mean, they're, they're really two different programs, and they both um, have their own good, good aspects. But to, to answer your initial question, 
Um, if we were to raise the the minimum wage to 1010, we would save as a state 205 million dollars on on food assistance through um, food stamps that we would not have to give out because we would be raising the threshold enough so that people could afford to use their earnings to go out and buy food to put out. You're talking about Michigan. You're talking. Uh, I believe my my numbers are for uh, are for Michigan. You're listening to Impact Exposure on. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Let's get back to our TV show audio uh, with Senator Gilda Jacobs and, J- and uh, Jarrett Skurup uh, from the uh, Mackinac Center for Public Policy as they discuss and debate the issue of uh, minimum wage. Um, well, I mean, on the other hand, if you, if you raise that price too much and you're uh, putting people where they lose their job, then you're adding more people onto getting getting food stamps. So there's you know there's a trade off somewhere. It's not that it's just you know we can do this this government policy and we're just going to have all good out of it. I mean there's a trade off for that, and so you know you could incentivize a lot of people to have to use more government services. So in Michigan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the earned income tax credit under the, what is a Republican governor and a Republican legislature has been diminished. Uh, so if that's a conservative solution, what, <laughs> right. why so, aren't conservatives embracing So we're kind of talking about a couple different things here because we're, we're talking about the minimum wage at the state level, the minimum wage at the national level, the earned income at the state level, and at the national level. At the state level, they trimmed it back. What, what they, what they were finding, yeah, significantly. Like what they were finding was, uh, you know, there was a large amount of fraud in that program. And, and that wasn't, uh, you know, you know, you can talk about that in a second. But what I would argue is doing that at a national level. Um, that earned income tax credit because uh, it's a lot easier to track in, in terms of uh, enforcing the program. It's, it would be better but why, to do. And I do want you to answer that, but why aren't conservatives in Michigan embrace, uh, why are they trimming it back there, if, if that's a helpful solution? Yeah, so there's a huge, well, like I said, because the, the way it was administered at the state level, there was a lot of fraud. They estimated 20%. Um, well, you know, why don't we give yeah. you a chance to address that? First of all, um, it, it's not administered at the state level. The, if you qualify for the federal EITC, you automatically qualify for the state EITC. It's just a formula that's right, so they on, extra, on your income tax. Yeah. There was a report that, uh, that there was some fraud and abuse at the federal level. The feds are trying to address that. But the interesting thing about that is that they found that the mistakes that were made, which the percentage-wise is no different than the percentage of mistakes from the general taxpaying public that fills out their forms, uh, was that the tax preparers were the ones that made the mistakes. It wasn't the individual, it was the people at various sites or maybe even people that they pay to do their returns that were making uh, making the mistakes. It's generally you know, innocent mistakes. Exactly. Or right, right. if, if uh, there was a couple and they were divorced and um, each, of them, uh, each of the parents uh, took a child deduction not knowing that the other one had done that, that's not malice. That's not, they're not really out trying to hurt, um, you know, hurt anybody. They were truly true, honest mistakes. So so there are efforts that are being made to to, to correct that. Um, so y- you know we, we can't we can't use the fraud and abuse brush on, on the EITC you know at, at all. Well, yeah, I mean, I was giving the reasoning on, yeah. on why I, I didn't mean like criminal fraud. I was saying in terms of that they weren't correct, um, but. There's a ton of different subsidies that Michigan uh, that Michigan does for low-income people. A lot of them, you know, in energy and housing and things like that. Um, if you go to the state budget office, they have a they have a nice chart showing the actual by income category what people are saying. We we provide a lot of um, help in a lot of different ways. But anyway, I mean, the overall point is being, you know, one of those problems with EITC. Yeah, how kind of complicated it was. Well, so let's argue about simplifying that. Let's argue about doing that, putting direct money, you know, back into people instead of arguing about this a program that is going to a very small portion of people that are low income. And of course, um, a higher minimum wage doesn't help you if you don't have a job. And that's a lot of the people, you know, that's the people who are in poverty nowadays. So, so the, you know, I would argue that the best thing to do is encourage more people to get jobs, and doing that would not be raising the cost of employing them. Now, you've, you've asked, you know, why not raise it to $20 an hour, but what about the other direction? 
do conservatives uh, like the Ma uh, organizations like the Mackinac Center support a minimum wage at all? Or if you had your way, would you get it's, rid of them? It's a really an ineffective thing. I mean, I, I would, I would, you know, it, it assumes that wages are set by government fiat rather than the marketplace, and it's set in the marketplace. And you know, that's why you know you had a lot higher percentage on of people on minimum wage at different times in the past, um, and you have a very small percentage of them on it today. Um, but what I would say is we should make it much easier for people to get into the workforce and they should negotiate um, their pay, work their way up in, in the world and eventually uh, start a career. Um, so, I mean, the, the issue, you know, I've, I've seen the president have, uh, and certainly he's talked about, well, you know, nobody should work full time and, uh, you know, that it, it kind of assumes that every job out there is a career. And, and I don't think so. I think there's lots of uh, where they're just jobs. Somebody's working a few extra hours to pick up, or they're starting out somewhere and they're trying to work up, learning the skills to actually have that career later on. What, uh, Senator and uh, Mr. Scrub, what about indexing the minimum wage? So even if it is an increase uh, arbitrarily to a certain amount, it is at least keeping pace with inflation. What, what do you think, uh, Senator? That would be fair. We do it with Social Security. Um, and, and by not indexing it to, to inflation, uh, we're really going backwards with, with people and their ability to buy goods and services in their own communities. What do you think about it? Well, if we that? index to inflation from when we started it in the 1930s, it would be $4 an hour. Okay, <laughs> that's a stunning number. I've not heard that before. Uh, I, what's your reaction to that? I have none. <laughs> yeah, well, so I, the point, you know, a lot of, they'll this. say, well, we'll we'll index it from the peak in 1968. Mm -hmm. It would be eleven dollars an hour, I think, mm -hmm. is is what we say. I mean, it, it's no no matter what. I mean, it's not a real effective tool at alleviating poverty. It, it, it certainly hasn't budged the numbers on that very much, and and in a lot of ways encourages more poverty. So you know, I I would say any any point that you're uh, raising it, you're, you're distorting incentives in the marketplace. You uh, said that uh, the real goal should be making it easier to, uh, for people to get jobs. Uh, is minimum wage an impairment to getting a job? Sure, yeah. I mean, if, if there's an employer and they think that you're worth, that their employee is worth $9 an hour for whatever reason, whether it's because someone's 16 years old and they're starting their, their first job or, or for whatever it is, if they think you're worth 9 and the government says you've got to pay them 10 well, they're not going to hire them. I mean, that is the very basics uh, of economics. So, yeah, it would be an impediment, impediment to getting jobs. And it particularly affects people who are low-skilled, um, which tends to come from low-income backgrounds, because those are the people that are trying to get those starting jobs. So if, if you're an employer and, you, and you're going to lay off, uh, and you have to lay off one of your person, let's, let's just assume this hypothetical, you know, we said the CBO, there's some people are going to be laid off. Well, if they're choosing between the higher-skilled and the lower-skilled, they're going to lay off the lower-skilled. And unfortunately, that's the people who tend to be the ones that we really need those jobs in the first place in order to move up in the world. Are you concerned about that, Senator? I, I, I'm really not, to be honest with you. I think that's uh, you know an argument that doesn't seem to hold water in, in, in terms of where I'm, uh, uh, where I'm coming from. You know, there are people who have been laid off from jobs who uh, need to pay their utility bills and put food on the table who are going in and working uh, at minimum wage jobs. Uh, because they need to continue to help support their families. So uh, it's not just 16-year-olds. Um, and even if it was a 16-year-old who was trying to help um, uh, supplement their parents' um, incomes, that's a good thing. Uh, just remember back when you were a teenager uh, and the kind of jobs that you had. You know, if you had money in your pocket and you could go out and buy, let's say, a new pair of jeans, that was money that, you know, my parents didn't have to spend and could use for other kinds of uh, household expenses. So th those are those are good things. Those are things that we want to encourage. Right. So I'm saying if, if there's an employer has to make a decision, who are they going to lay off? Um, it, who, who knows? Right. You know, who, It'd who probably be the lower skill. May, I mean, maybe or, well, or maybe I not. I've observed they tend to go for older people uh, who are making higher wages because they know they can replace them with younger people. Well, we're ta but we're talking, I mean, in terms of the people that are actually making the minimum wage. It, it, may, be, it may be the last person that was hired. You know, there may be different personnel practices. Right. Um, and I think even, uh, you know, all employers have to be careful who gets laid off because otherwise, you know, there could actually be an employment discrimination um, issue. 
Um. Uh, Mr. Scrub, the, uh, uh, the concern I think that isn't getting addressed uh, here is uh, what's going to happen to these people uh, who are making minimum wage if it is not increased because we, we seem to be seeing more and more people who are actually doing that uh, having to work at minimum wage jobs for a living if they can even get jobs again after they you know have been unemployed for uh, six months or more mm -hmm. what, right what? well I well I mean and if those people have been unemployed for six months and they're trying to get a job you're making it harder for them to go out and get a job and, and you know I should point out like but this does, is, is it really I mean that, you know that argument assumes that businesses won't pass this cost along and really when it comes down to whether I pay a nickel more for a cheeseburger at McDonald's, is that really going to reduce business? I, I mean, on paper maybe it will, but in reality will it? Well, I mean, so if you're, so the, so either, yeah, they or they make up another way by raising prices, but I don't see how that puts more money back in the economy. Or they economy become more... Uh, you know, innovative as far so, as technology. Right. So that assumes that they're not trying to become more innovative right now. I mean, why? So there's a government mandate forces them to become more innovative. Well, that's that interesting because the number of opponents, the argument right. of a number of opponents of minimum wage is, uh, you know, minimum wage employees are going to get replaced at restaurants by tablets where people can order on their own. They don't need a person. But shouldn't that be happening anyway? Right. Why? So you can incentivize to make it harder. I mean, if you, if, if, you know, depending on what wage you're requiring, uh, yeah, you know, if, if you're, if they're, if they're looking at their employment costs and you make it much higher um, by a minimum wage versus not as high, I mean, all that stuff happens at the margins um, in a business. But you can certainly incentivize them to move in that direction to use less employees. I guess, I don't know, I'm skeptical of that argument and I'm interested in your thoughts, but it seems to me that employers are very bottom line and if they can save money regardless of the minimum wage, whatever it may be, they're going to help save money. That's absolutely and, true. They and will. A lot of people who are working at minimum wage jobs are actually working in jobs that technology really can't replace. So if you are a server, you can't, you can't have technology, uh, a robot, uh, end up serving you. Uh, if you're a home care aide or a home care assistant or a daycare worker, um, those are jobs that are never going to be replaced by, by technology. And those jobs are really, really important, uh, not only to our economy, but to the health and welfare of so many of the people that we love and care about, whether they're kids or our grandparents. Um, who benefit from uh, the care that, that people are giving them. But there's no free lunch in the economy, and, and those costs are made up somewhere. And so the question that we're back to is, who determines the cost of something and the benefits of something better, the government or the private market? And the, the bulk of the literature suggests that it's the private market. But what's interesting, though, is the polling that's been done on minimum wage has it just you know, off the charts, people understand the concept of working hard and having enough money to, to support your family. Um, and so would I pay $5.13 for a Subway as opposed, sandwich as opposed to $5 for my foot-long Subway? Yeah, I, I certainly would because as a consumer, I also care about the person that is uh, you know, handing me that, that, that Subway sandwich as well. So, so you should start a Subway and you should charge five thirteen. <laughs> I mean, it's a, you know, all the, the, the we're, and businesses make those decisions all the time. Mm -hmm. they, you know, how much, how much is it worth me to keep these people on longer, which you do by, by turning something into a career and paying them more. Um, it, you know, uh, but like I said, so, you know, right now, if you, if you want to, just in terms of the economics of this, if you want to make a lot of money, you go and you be an oil and gas engineer. Because you st your medium salary coming out right now this this year is about a hundred thousand dollars. I'm now, gonna change jobs. Is that because <laughs> is that because the oil and gas companies are simply just better people than these mom and pop shops or these fast food restaurants? It, or is it because they're looking at the supply and demand in the marketplace, how they're figuring out determining what is the salary level is worth of someone? That's that's so what we're I know about. that I'm paying uh, at the gas pump a lot of money to help support those those salaries. All right. Well, All right. we uh, we are about out of time. I want to thank both our guests, uh, Senator uh, Gilda Jacobs, Executive Director of the Michigan League for Public Policy, and 
and uh, Jared Skurub, who is a research associate at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. You can find out more about both your organizations mm -hmm. online. And I want to, uh, first of all, thank the nearly 11,000 people who voted so far in our Top of the Town uh, contest. Uh, round two will start on April 30th, so you can look for that uh, in City Pulse. And I also want to mention, if you haven't done so already, that our uh, new mobile app is available to download. Uh, you can find out more about that as well in City Pulse. Uh, thanks so much for uh, tuning in today. We'll be back next Sunday. That's our show for tonight. I want to thank all our guests, Frank Ravitch, MSU Professor of Law and Religion, Brad Van Gilder from the Sierra Club, uh, Sam Porter, the organizer of the Microbrew and Music Festival at Luodato Park uh, this uh, Friday and Saturday, Mike Lasher from New Belgium Brewing Company, uh, f uh, who, uh, which is hosting the, the uh, Brew Ha Ha. Uh, night at uh, the at uh, the loft. Uh, that's Thursday night. Both events are ticketed events. You can find out more about both of them in City Pulse this week. Uh, thanks to Andy Blaskovitz uh, for co-hosting tonight, and uh, we'll be back next week. I'm Burl Schwartz. Good night. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Yeah.